that song is somewhat unusual, but I think it expresses the attitude that this passage calls us to. And uh, on the one hand, I was talking with someone after the service a few weeks ago and said, I feel bad because all of these are kind of convicting messages, both to preach and probably for you all to hear as well. But as God speaks to us, we have to pay attention to what his word says. Many of you have ever been in an argument with someone. Yeah. (laughs) We should probably all raise our hands, right? And our natural response, depending on things like if you're a kid or you're an adult or the nature of the circumstances, our natural response is to put the blame on someone else. He started it. She pushed me. Adults, we try to mask it a little bit, but we still try to transfer the blame to someone else, right? And a passage like this comes at the heart of the conflicts that arise in our experience and says the cause is that you are loving the world instead of God, that you are going for what you desire instead of what God desires, that in arrogance you may be putting yourself above God's word instead of standing in obedience under God's word. Let's see how the passage develops those ideas. It says, The source of quarrels and conflicts is your pleasures that wage war in your members. And it phrases this in terms of a question, but the way that the question is structured and the way the translations capture this well, the expected answer is, yes, that's the reason. And so when James says it, he's not expecting a no, he's expecting a yes. The reason that we have conflicts among us is because there's things that we want and we don't get them. Verse 2, you lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. When he says, so you commit murder, is he saying literally murder? Some see him speaking in a kind of an exaggeration. Uh, Some see it as a shorthand for what Jesus said. If you have hatred toward your brother, the only difference between you and Cain who killed his brother is how far down the line of hatred you've gone. And that's probably the sense in which James is using this phrase. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. Think about that story. What did Abel receive that Cain didn't have God's approval. And Cain was so overcome with anger, that's the reason he killed his brother, because he did not have that thing that he wanted. Now there's a sense in which desiring God's approval is right, but we cannot go at it in the wrong way and, and, and be pleasing to God. And in the context of James's audience, it raises the question of, what sort of conflicts did he have in mind? It, doesn't, it seems to be something more than a, a theoretical or a possible conflict. It seems to be something that was actually going on. It's the sort of strong language that Paul uses to the Corinthian church when the Corinthian church has all these fightings about who's better and who has what spiritual gifts and, and is characterized by pride and selfishness and all of these kinds of things. And so we come here to these verses 
And James is condemning a living according to our own desires that results in sin. Sometimes it doesn't go to the extent of the full carrying out of hatred. Sometimes it is you want something, you can't get it, so you fight and quarrel. I say this would never happen in the church. Sometimes someone wants a particular task, job in the church. Sometimes someone wants a particular recognition in the church. You say, well, give me an example. Barnabas is known as the son of encouragement, sold his land, brought it to the apostles, received praise from them. Ananias and Sapphira wanted the same kind of recognition. They were envious of Barnabas. Their envy led them to sin, and God took their lives away in judgment for their sin because their envy was such a threat to the unity of the church that God took it very seriously. That's the same kind of thing that James is talking about here. Someone jealously desiring something someone else has or is or does, being willing to sin in order to get it. And James says, you cannot live that way. He says, one of the reasons you may not have the thing that you desire is because you don't ask for it. But he says, sometimes you ask for it, verse 3, and you don't get it because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. It's easy for us to mask, potentially, these sorts of prayer requests as being a noble thing. God, I need you to give me $500,000 so that I can give more money to the church. As a general rule, why would any of us want $500,000? Because there's things we want to do with it for ourselves. I'm not saying having money is wrong. I'm not saying using it on necessary things is evil. I'm just saying that's the sort of thing where James is saying you can make it sound like you're praying to God and saying, God, I want you to bless me in this way so I can serve you better. But the testimony of Scripture is if we don't serve God faithfully with what he's already given us, why do we think we're going to serve him more faithfully with more? And most of the time or at least more often than not, the thing that drives those selfish kinds of prayer requests is not a noble desire to serve God. It's a way for us to put forth the things that we want and make it seem kind of spiritual. How do we know that James was not pleased with this sort of attitude? Well, look at how he condemns those who would behave in this way. You adulteresses. This is the language that the prophets used to describe the nation of Israel when they went after pagan gods and goddesses and worshipped them instead of the one true God. He was saying, spiritually speaking, it's as though God is your husband and you've abandoned him for all of these other people. I mean, the, the prophets specifically say that in the language of condemnation of Israel and Judah. You've behaved as an adulteress. God had committed himself to you and you ran after other gods. And we look at our own lives and we say, well, you know what? I'm not really wanting anything different than the people around me want. But that's the problem. If we want the things that the people around us want who don't know God, who are we connecting ourselves with? What things are we loving? Not what pleases God, not what honors God. And the necessary result is this. If God is here and the world is here, and I love the world, who am I far from? 
apart from God. So there's these, these three contrasts, and, and you go to the one side, and you get closer to one. You go to the other side, you get closer to the other. The first one is what I desire versus what God desires. The world versus being close to God. And the last one is me going my own way and being proud. And the, uh, the other end is humility. You can't have it both ways. James is saying you cannot think that you are pleasing God if in the way that you speak you curse your brother and praise God with the same mouth. You cannot think that you are pleasing God if you desire what you want in opposition of what God wants. You cannot think that you are pleasing God if you go toward the world and away from God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be the friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, it raises the question for us, how worldly can you be before you can't really call yourself a Christian anymore? Romans 1 paints a very sobering picture of those whom God has given over to sin. And I think the weight of Scripture would say a Christian cannot stand in Romans 1 and call himself a Christian. But what about somebody like Lot? We're going to look at him more in the upcoming chapters of Genesis. Lot is someone who Jude or Peter says was tormented in his righteous soul by the things that he saw in Sodom. But something held him to that wicked place. Do we find ourselves in some way or another behaving like Lot? We say, you know what, Lord, I know that this doesn't please you. I know that you set up these boundaries about when I can have this kind of relationship or that I have to wait for your timing that I might receive this particular kind of blessing or that uh, the Christian life is not one that is without trials, uh, but I really want to be out of that. So I see that as, as being more important than what you might be accomplishing through the trial. It, is it possible for us to draw near to the world and what's important to us, what, our, what we desire, and to disregard all the things that God says are important. To some degree or another, I think that's possible even for God's people to be drawn toward the world and away from God, to be focused on what we desire instead of what God desires. This is not an argument of saying... Give up all sense of individuality and be merged with the greater world spirit. We have to be careful because sometimes um, the language of surrender and of obedience and all of these sorts of things almost sound like a Christianized version of something like, like Hinduism or Buddhism where we lose all sense of self and we're only part of this great spiritual being. What ought to happen instead of abandoning any sense of personhood, like in the Eastern religions, is instead to see ourselves 
as what we want becoming aligned with what God wants so that they become one and the same thing. What James is describing is the experience that we often find, which is what we want and what God wants are far removed from each other. Verse 5 is puzzling. Do you think the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. There's at least three main ways that this is translated, probably a host of others. The two best ones are to understand either the way that it's translated here, spirit as a capital S, or to see it as a lowercase s, as in the spirit is our spirit. There is a discussion of what passage this might be tied to. And again, there's much disagreement about which passage it is tied to. If we see it as being parallel to or connected with Exodus chapter 20, the sense would be this. God is a God who is jealous for the people he has called out for himself. He jealously desires the entirety of our lives that he has granted to us. And he will not permit us to live in sin and go our own way rather than to be in obedience to what his desire is for us. Tying it in with a passage like Ephesians 2.10, you're created in Christ Jesus that you would walk in good works, or the whole argument James made in the first part of this book, right? Faith without works is dead. Here's what you want. Here's what God wants. God wants you to want what he wants, which is to obey him and to do good works and to live out a real faith. Verse 6 says, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And we might say, well, you know, that's great. I should not want all these things that are remnants of the old way of life or just natural human ways of thinking, things that, that appeal to someone apart from God. I, I shouldn't want those, but that's hard to put those off and to put on doing what God wants me to do. Well, what does verse 6 say? He gives a greater grace. He gives more grace. It's not like you have to do this in your own strength. God will help you. There's a parallel here to, I think, what he said in chapter 1 and verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. One seventeen. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God gives greater grace. God is ready to hear our prayer of, I need help to put off worldly lusts and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, as the book of Titus says. The scripture says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that's the, the third thing, the third contrast here. The first one is what I want versus what God wants. And then it's friendship with the world versus friendship with God. And then it's pride versus humility. If I am humble, if I am striving to desire what God desires me to be and do and think and want, and if I am living 
recognizing that I need his help to do so, then I am fulfilling James's desire for his readers in this passage. But how do we get from here to here? Submit, therefore, to God. And the submit, therefore, to God is going to be tied to verse 11, this idea of judging the law versus being ruled by it. What we saw back in chapter 2, where we could potentially think that we are not accountable to God for anything, when in fact we are still under his um, requirements for our lives. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. When it says resist the devil, uh, this is not a... This is not an admonition to go seek out the devil and try to stop him from doing anything and everything that he's doing in the world. Rather, it is when we are confronted with the temptation to live according to our lust, to walk in pride, to love the world. By God's grace, we say, I cannot live that way because I belong to God. We resist the devil and he will flee from you, not because of our power, but because of God's power working through us. Part of that humility is what comes in verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Wait a minute. If I'm over here, and I am living in a way that shows that I'm being a friend to the world, shouldn't, shouldn't God, like, come close to me and, like, help me out? It says you've got to step away from the worldliness that you are loving and living in and step toward God, and having done so, God will keep drawing you to himself. Now, how do we understand this in the context of the way God works in salvation and in sanctification? God is sovereign in all those things. He's working out his purpose in our lives. But the thing that we individually need to be concerned about is not all of the behind-the-scenes amazing way that God's sovereignty connects with all these things. But we're, when we're in the moment of sin, we can't be like, I, you know, I don't understand all the theological things that kind of work behind the scenes. to make. So James just says, look, you are loving the world. Walk away from it. You are living for the things that you want. Walk away from that. You are living in pride. Get on your knees before God. That's what comes in the next verse. Be miserable or cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He he pulls in here imagery from the Old Testament about the the, the sacrifices and the washings and the cleansing and all of these things that would have been a, a repeated fixture of the lives of the people of God, the Israelites, they would have gotten these illusions of what he's saying here. Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. But he's taking it and saying, all that stuff you do on the outside, not really about the outside. We're not worried about germs here. We're worried about the state of your heart in God's sight. Cleanse your hands from sin, basically, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. How are they being double-minded? Because they belong to God, 
But they're going back and forth between loving the world and loving God, between doing what they want and doing what God wants, between being proud and being humble. And James says, not that you have to be perfect, because none of us are. We saw that at the beginning of chapter 3. But you can't go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. That's double-mindedness. Repent of that. The song that we sang just before the sermon, it, the, the tone of it uh, doesn't make us feel happy. Doesn't make us feel like we want to jump up and run around and shout for joy. It makes us feel a little bit uneasy. What does verse 9 say? Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Is that the attitude that we have toward our sin? Not wallowing in self-pity. I can't believe what a terrible person I am. Because that's another form of pride. But a humility that says, how can I love the things that Christ died that I should no longer walk in? How can I be a friend of the world that hates God? How can I walk in pride when I ought to bow my knee before the God who is the only one that is worthy of praise and honor? By way of application from that verse, when's the last time that you were so overcome by the, the terribleness of your sin that you wept before God in repentance? I think we're around sin so much in our world that it doesn't really even seem bad anymore. And we can become blind to it in our own hearts. Well, yeah, I said that mean thing about that person, but it wasn't as bad as what the other person said. It's still sin. Yeah, I got angry with my family because... I was tired and things were busy and we needed to get somewhere and we were running late. That's still sin. I wanted this thing that God said I should not want. I was being greedy or I was being lustful or I was being whatever the sin was. But, I mean, come on, most of the time I do a really good job. Sin ought to cause us to be sorry before God and not a sorry that's like ah, I got caught, people noticed if I don't say something I'm going to look bad but a sorrow that is a godly sorrow that leads to repentance that's like what Paul said to the church at Corinth, here's someone who's been living wickedly and I had to speak harshly to him and to you and the result of it was that you turned away from your sin and now you're following God that's the sort of sorrow that James is talking about. Verse 10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Notice it doesn't say humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, so he will exalt you. It says if you humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, he will exalt you. And what does that exaltation look like? It doesn't look like God giving you all the things that you wanted when you're living for worldly lusts. It looks like sharing in the glory that is Christ and being a part of what God is accomplishing in this world and sharing in God's glorious reign over things for all eternity. 
And which would be better? Lots of money, all the things of this world that we could ever want, or being a part of God's glorious plan coming to its final days and hours, and we're on the right side in that battle. Which one is more glorious? Which one is a better exaltation? And then verses 11 and 12 seem like they're disconnected from what comes right before, but they are tied to them, and they're tied as well to things from chapter 3. He goes back to this idea of speech, and he goes back to, I think, what's going on in chapter 4, verse 1, and so on. What do you think the quarreling involved? It wasn't just an intellectual kind of thing. There were words going back and forth. Do not speak against one another. He who's brethren, he who speaks against a brother or judges his brother, speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of it, but a judge of it. If I come into the context of a church or life in general, and I think that I have the right to do what the end of chapter 3 condemns, or the middle of chapter 3 condemns, and characterizing the wisdom that's at the end of chapter 3, which is to curse my brother, I am very potentially violating what God spelled out in the Ten Commandments for the Israelites, and definitely violating the spirit of what God says, love your neighbor as yourself. If I speak against him, and I'm saying, well, I'm going to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, but I'm not going to love my neighbor as myself. I'm coming before God. I'm saying, I can pick and choose which parts of the things you want me to do I really feel like doing right now. And then what's our attitude toward the law? It's not being under what God expects of us. It's sitting as a judge over it and saying, I'm going to do this part, and I'm going to do this part, and I'm not going to do these things over here which is the sort of pride that James condemns throughout these sections. Who is it that we stand under? There is one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? That ties back to chapter 3 and verse 1, right? Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. It goes back to chapter 2 and verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. And then it talks about back in chapter 1, God's assessment of us. It is possible for us as believers to have conflicts with one another. The driving force behind those conflicts is the I wants that are in our hearts. James says, don't make excuses for those things. Don't blame it on somebody else. It was not Abel's fault that Cain killed Abel. It was Cain's fault. It was the wickedness in Cain's heart that led him to do it. So repent of the sort of wickedness that makes you think that the thing that you want, the thing that I want, is more important than doing what God calls me to do, which is to love my neighbor as myself. If I think what I want is more important than doing that, then clearly I'm not following what God wants. 
Secondly, if I am going to align myself with the world that God has called me out of, not trees and grass and flowers, but a world system that's opposed to God that says, trust your heart, do whatever you want, grab everything you can get, this is all there is. If that's the sort of thinking that is controlling my life, I am, metaphorically speaking, far from God. Because I can't love this and love God. That's what Jesus said. You can't serve two masters. You can't love money and the world and all of these sorts of things and love God. And if my life is characterized by pride, that when someone says something like, hey, what you did was wrong, and I'm always defending myself and never willing to admit my sin and all of those sorts of things, God's not going to bless me. At that point, God's my enemy and is going to bring me low by one means or another. What's the path to get away from my lust, loving the world, pride, and get over to what God wants, <coughs> loving God, and humility? It's repentance. It's coming before God and saying, I have sinned. I am submitting to what you want. I am resisting what Satan wants from me. I am coming close to you. I need to be washed and cleansed from my sins. I am sorry, and it was wrong, and will you forgive me and change me again? That's not something we can do in our own strength. That's not something that we can do on our own merit. There's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, and he's the one that we come through because he is interceding before God the Father for us so that when we find ourselves in a position like this and we need to repent, we come before Christ and Christ says, Father, forgive them, not on the basis of what they have done, but on the basis of what I have done. Spirit, come alongside them and work in them and grant them power to change. God the Father, continue to carry out the plan that you have said that you will do, that you have begun a good work and you will complete it until the day when I return to reign. This is a heavy passage. And it may be that you are walking right with God right now, but let us never think that we are beyond the need for what this passage outlines. We are not yet in God's presence. We have not yet arrived. And there is some area of sin yet in our life that we need to continue to deal with. Maybe right now, maybe tomorrow, maybe on Wednesday. Whenever it is, remember this passage. And instead of saying, I'm going to want what I want and keep wanting it. The world's not all that bad. desires to draw near to him and away from the world in terms of following the wrong way of life that is characterized by and the 
God wants you to humbly follow him, not to arrogantly look down on what he has said and say, you know what? I can do this list of the things you said, and I'm not going to do this part of the things that you've said, and I have the right to do that. That's not the humility that God looks for. Lust versus God's desire. Same word in the Greek. You lust after things. God lusts after, strongly, earnestly desires your spirit to walk in obedience to him. The world versus God. Pride versus humility. And the path to get from one to the other is repentance. Let's pray. Lord, we all stumble in many ways. If any of us does not stumble in what we say, then by James' reckoning, we are mature or perfect, able to rule not only our tongues, but also the rest of our bodies. But the reality is, most of the time, in some area or another, we're not ruling our tongues and we're not ruling our hearts And those desires are set in opposition to what you desire. Many times we are caught up in the empty pursuits of those around us. We become too comfortable in this world. We love it too much. We become distracted from the need of those around us and the coldness of our own hearts and we get caught up playing with trinkets and toys and temporary things. In pride, we can go from one moment behaving in a wicked fashion in your sight to listening to a hymn of praise about you, going to our Bible reading, and if we don't pause for repentance between those two things, Lord, convict our hearts. Lord, it may have been a long time since the last time our sin caused us to weep because it offends you. Sometimes we become too comfortable resting in the fact that our salvation cannot be lost and that forgiveness is provided in Christ, that we sort of without thinking adopt the mindset that Paul condemns that says, well, there's lots of grace, so why not sin a little bit more? There'll be even more grace. We ought to say, may that never be. God forbid. Lord, we pray that the path of repentance from our old way of life to the new way of life would be one where there are deep ruts worn in that path because we are constantly turning away from what we were and what we did and what we loved, and we are constantly turning back to you. There's a sense that it's a one-time turning, and there's a sense that it's an ongoing, daily, hourly, even moment-by-moment moment, turning away 
from things that you hate, things that are your enemy, things that ought not be this way, to things which reflect your character, honor you, express the humility that you require of us. Lord, continue to work in our hearts and lives. Help us not to be callous towards sin, deaf towards your spirit, comfortable in this world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.